Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of amazing co-hosts. My name is Steve Guntley, and from now on, I will have TV. Joining me today for the first time on this show, weirdly, you might know her from uh, the appearances on Alter 64, where I dragged her on against her will, or from just generally being an awesome person who stupidly agreed to marry me. Nicole Vatisse is here. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you for being in our house that we share together uh, at a time <laughs> that is consistent with our recording. <laughs> I'm very excited to have Nicole here because, uh, well, I married her and I'm excited about that. But uh, we are talking about a film today called Mula Day, which I'm probably, I'm, I'm going to be butchering a lot of pronunciations in this episode. I'm going to warn all of you right now, if you are sensitive to hearing me mispronounce names, um, this is, this is going to be a cornucopia for you. So Mula Day was released May 14th, 2004. It's directed by Usman Sembene. It's a Senegalese production, but the spoken languages here are French and Bambara. Uh, I'm really excited to jump into this one because this is a movie from a filmmaker I've never encountered, from a part of the world I've never seen a film from, and it's describing a culture that feels so almost alien to me, like it's so unique and so fascinating. And I think this movie is a real testament to the power of film as like a transformative medium to be able to drop you into this other part of the world, make you feel like you're a fly on the wall. And it was a really pretty incredible experience. Um, it's it's a difficult movie to talk about for a lot of reasons. Uh, it it can, be, can be a little rough. Um, so I guess we'll just start off with, uh, uh, I think we should breach the subject matter of this movie a little bit so that we have kind of an idea and consider this kind of a trigger warning as well for people if this is a, a topic that's a little difficult to learn about. Um, but the the central focus of this movie, Mulade, is female genital mutilation, uh, FGM as it's often called, it's a, or female circumcision, you've seen it referred to as well. Uh, this is a practice that takes place in uh, Africa, Asia, certain parts of the Middle East, uh, Nicole's got a little bit more information on on this and so, kind of the stats and figures about uh, a female circumcision. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so I just kind of took it upon myself to find an article that talked about this because I think one thing that you kind of wonder when they call something female circumcision, you're like, well, male circumcision is really common. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's, it, it is controversial, but it's not to the level of the female of the FGM. So mm -hmm. I guess knowing a little bit more about why that is. Um, so there's, there's a huge difference. Male circumcision, it, it's a little controversial cause it's not super necessary, but it actually weirdly decreases rates of STIs. It's not entirely a negative thing, mm. but with female, the female version, which the WHO recommends calling, FGM versus female circumcision because it it isn't just circumcision. It's much more, it's usually much more invasive. FGM and, kind of more adequately captures what it is, yeah. Yes, yeah. So in it actually, I don't have the stats, but I think what Steve had said is something hmm. like 15% of the people actually die from FGM. Right. These are often performed uh, not in surgical suites and not with sanitary tools, uh, so women have been known to get infections and dies roughly like 15%, according to the stat I found on Wikipedia. Take that with a grain of salt, but yeah. Yeah, but um, women can, they can develop sepsis, they can 
go into shock from the bleeding. Um, at, at a very basic level, what we're talking about here is the usually it's the removal of the clitoris. Um, uh, sometimes it's as extreme as sewing the vulva almost entirely shut uh, in an effort to it, it's, they're usually these are usually religious ceremonies. Uh, for local cultures, sometimes like conflated with Islamic mythology and uh, practices. Uh, and it's something that happens pretty regularly. And it, it's pretty, yeah. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So, but it, it has been banned in most of the world just because it is so detrimental. And just even the recommendation of this from Islam, I wouldn't, I would say that most people who practice Islam are not saying that this is something that's necessary or needed. Yeah. Um, It seems to be kind of where, like, traditional religion conflates with Islamic religion from, like, colonized countries, things like that. It seems to be kind of a confluence of a couple of different faith practices that kind of leads to that. Yeah, but that's just kind of a brief background. Yeah. Um, It's it's interesting to note, too, because there are uh, a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but there are some vocal advocates for FGM uh, that are women that have been brought up in this tradition and who see it as kind of a form of expression, a form of beauty, a form of faith, uh, various other different things. So it's one of those things that it, it feels kind of icky as like a white Western person to like jump in and say, no, 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 don't do this. But at the same time, it's kind of hard to look at it and look at these practices and look at the numbers of people dying and not be, horrified just on a basic human level and i feel like this film mulade is taking a a pretty strong anti-fgm stance and that's coming from somebody who's grown up in this culture and lives in this culture and is very invested in it so i think that that carries a lot of weight that carries a lot more weight than anything you or i could say yeah and i think just being witnesses to this movie is an important thing and i think that's part of why this movie was on this list and is important. It's very important. I mean, I can't recall ever seeing another film that tackles this subject, much less in such a way. Like, as much as, like, you might be forgiven for, like, hearing us talk about this and kind of opening with some heavy stuff here and thinking that this is a really heavy, like, hard-to-watch movie. And it's not. Like, it's really not. I didn't think so anyway. Like, there there are parts that are are very visceral and very... And it's never, like, a terribly graphic movie, but the implications are there, and it's upsetting. But this is also a movie that is full of color and music and laughter and joy and really beautiful, unique scenery. And it's it's a very lively movie and it's not heavy handed in the way it's approaching this topic, which is, which is really cool. And I was also surprised to see this, this kind of takes a pretty traditional like Hollywood movie hero turn by the end that I was not expecting because a lot of the time going up to it, it's kind of eschewing the things that we think of as like modern cinema, especially modern Western cinema. And for it to kind of come around in the end and and embrace this sort of hero type was really cool. And it reminded me of Norma Ray of all things or like stand and deliver. It's, it's one voice standing up against injustice and like bringing everybody with them after, you know, sacrifice and struggle, you know, it it, it was very cool. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Usman Sembene, who is the director here. Very fascinating guy. I had to look into him a little bit. Uh, 
So in addition, to, he's, he's something of a polymath, you know? So in addition to being a celebrated author and an artist, he's often considered one of the finest filmmakers from the continent of Africa. So he was born in Senegal in 1923, and he was raised in the Serer religion, which is a, a local, like an early Senegalese religion. And that kind of informed his films and his work from then on. Uh, he was conscripted into the French army in 1943, because I believe at this time Senegal was part of uh, the French colonies. Uh, and uh, he served in World War II. And then after he returned, he uh, moved to France full time. He became a, a dock worker. And then he became a very vocal advocate for dock workers' rights, in addition to becoming an outspoken communist. He joined the Communist Party in the late 1940s. Um, so he turned his experience working on the docks into his first novel, which was called The Black Docker. It was published in 1958. And he published several more novels in subsequent years, including the critically acclaimed God's Bits of Wood. And he was developing kind of a reputation as this very fresh and unique and powerful voice in uh, for, for social change and for advocating for African immigrants, especially in France, uh, which is very cool. So after a little while, he realized that uh, he was going to get to a wider audience by switching to cinema, by, by moving beyond just like the written word and starting to make films. So he uh, put together a couple of little short films and, and worked as a screenwriter on a couple of projects. Uh, but he made his directorial debut with a 1966 film called Black Girl. And this is recognized as the first ever feature-length film from a sub-Saharan African director, which is kind of amazing. Like, it took that long for somebody to do it. But yeah, 1966, the first sub-Saharan African filmmaker. Pretty cool. Um, so... He would direct only eight films after that, uh, most of which are relatively obscure but highly praised. Movies like Sedo, Zala, and Mandabi. Uh, his films were often calls for action against social injustice or treaties against organized religion. One of his movies, uh, Sedo, from 1977, that was heavily censored uh, in the 1970s for a perceived anti-Muslim bias, which he never really spoke out against or, or, or said anything about. But yeah, that was that was a belief. And Moulade, Day, the film we are watching today, was Simbene's last film. He died in Dakar, Senegal in 2007 at the age of 84, which means he was 80 years old when he made this movie, which is pretty amazing for such like a lively movie, you know, that feels very fresh and very new. Um, yeah, so the title, uh, this is a, a, a Bambara word, Moulade, it means magical protection, uh, which comes into play quite a bit here. Um, so what would you say, do you, do you, what would you say is like the kind of the base? Could you give like a quick plot summary, like of this movie? Like, what would you say is the quick plot summary? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the movie really starts with the, there's these little girls that show up at, at this woman, uh, mother Cole's house and they want protection to prevent them from needing to get cleansed, which was, or that's what they called it, right? They call it purification. Purification. Yeah. But uh, to prevent that, and which is the FGM. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just all about her protecting them and what that protection means. And then the process of convincing everyone else around her that this is the right thing to do and that, um, that this is a practice that is harmful to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of about the ripple effects that go throughout this whole village just because of this one woman refusing to um, offer up these little girls uh, for, for purification. So the, the actress who plays Mother Kole is a woman named Fatumata Kolebale. And again, I'm going to 
butcher all of these. So apologies to Miss Colabale. Uh, but she's a Malian actress, and she herself underwent uh, genital mutilation when she was very young. Uh, she only had a few acting roles, mostly a theater actress in Africa, but uh, this was one of her few lead roles. And after landing this part, she has become like a very outspoken advocate uh, against FGM. And like she's using her platform in a way to kind of argue against the practice and try and have it outlawed. So very cool. Um, so I think the the first thing you're going to notice when this movie opens is this incredibly striking looking village. Like immediately this looks like nowhere else you've ever seen. And the the dominant feature in this village is this very large, we, we don't even learn it's a mosque until much later, but this is the local mosque. It's bright yellow. It's got all these logs sticking out like, like hedgehog quills. And we learn that it's been built kind of in the image of uh, this termite mound that's kind of in the center of the village to represent their connection with nature and their prosperity. Uh, and at the top of the mosque, you notice there's a large ostrich egg that's been kind of impaled on top of the spire. Um, so I don't know, right away, it's like, wow, this feels otherworldly right here. Like, like this is this is a structure. We don't actually ever see inside the mosque either. We only ever see it from the exterior, which is interesting. And then... We see a little bit of the inside of most of the houses, but a lot of the movie takes place outdoors uh, in the square of these different little compounds where they all live. Uh, so the village is kind of ruled over by a little council of uh, Islamic elders, uh, all men. And Mother Kole is actually the second of three wives to a man named Batili, who is kind of, he's kind of coded as being like, a good, reasonable man for the most part uh, in the early going. Um, fairly lenient with his wives, and he clearly loves them a lot. He tells Mother Cole at one point that she is uh, his favorite wife, uh, which you are too for me. Uh, if if I have to, you know, if I have to rank them, you're number one right oh up there. Oh my gosh! Right up there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's it's a very like I don't know. Right from the get go, you're just like you're dropped into this world, and it feels unlike anything else you've ever seen, and you. You get to feel like you're this observer, and uh, it's really amazing to just kind of watch people go about their daily lives. I was getting a very strong, I, I, I mentioned this while we were watching the movie, I was getting a very strong do the right thing vibe off of the early going of this, because in a similar way, do the right thing opens on its very colorful neighborhood. We get to meet all the different characters as they're kind of going about their business, uh, and and we can see that there's there's a there's a tension building, you know, right from the get-go. Like, it's friendly, it's amicable, everybody knows each other and everybody is communicating, but there's an underlying tension that's kind of driving the entire thing. Yeah, and I think um, that's really clear. There's a lot of, like, when you said that, I didn't realize this yet, but there's a lot of symbolism around the music and the radios yeah. that are playing. And it kind of does a very similar thing. Like, those radios come into play several times during the movie, and they just get louder and more chaotic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a really, Simbeni does a really cool thing where, like, he uses a pile of radios in the center of the town as as kind of a way to demonstrate the mounting tension. You know, as the ra pile of radios gets bigger and bigger, things come closer and closer to coming to a head until things finally explode in a yeah almost literal way. Uh so I, I love just like little details too here. There's a moment where uh, Mother Cole like just lifts up her shirt. Like she's just getting something out of her pocket or she's correcting her pants or something. And we see her stomach and her stomach is, it, it's scarred from a cesarean and she's got stretch marks. It's saggy. It's, it's 
it's a belly you would never see in an American film. And it was just kind of beautiful, just kind of casual and beautiful. And we just, we know so much about who this woman is just from that imagery right there. And I, I thought that was just a really striking moment. Yeah. So this inciting incident that we're talking about, the four little girls showing up to the village, this happens immediately. Like there isn't really any kind of build up to this. Like this is how we are introduced to everybody with these four little girls running in and begging for protection from Mother Cole. Now Mother Cole seems to be kind of, she seems to be kind of the torchbearer for like the old ways, like the pre-Islamic religions, which is seems to be a little bit rooted in like magic and witchcraft and things like that. So they believe in her power to cast this kind of protection. And so the mulade is represented by a colorful rope that they kind of string along at like ankle level on the doorway of their complex. And we we keep seeing that rope over and over and like people are afraid of it. Every time like somebody comes in, like there is a tension. There's, there's some people that are refused to cross it because they really believe in the power of it. But then we also get that conflated with like, animals just kind of coming and going harmlessly or children kind of crawling under the rope or crawling over the rope. Like, like they're not bothered by it. Like the movie isn't arguing that this rope has any kind of inherent power granted by nature. He's arguing that this is the power that's been, they're giving this the power. Like the people who are afraid of it are giving it the power. Yeah. Um, which is very cool. So we get to meet some of the local characters here. Uh, one of the important ones we meet early on is Mercenaire, who is the local shopkeeper. He's got a small push cart, mostly filled with like plastic bins and stuff like that. Uh, he sells batteries from there. He sells a couple of like uh, crusty looking loaves of bread. And one of my favorite details is he has a bunch of razors, uh, like just simple one blade shaving razors hanging from a clothesline, like a, like a mobile, you know? So there's a moment where a character walks past all of his wares hanging from the line and there's razors and then there's underpants and then there's just like sunglasses, just very random things kind of strung along. Uh, true to his name, Mercenaire is, uh, he overcharges. He's a little bit shifty. He, uh, he's hitting on all the women every time that they come by. He's asking all of them to marry him and flirting shamelessly, but he's well liked in the village. Like despite all this, they know he's kind of a con man, but he's well liked, you know, and he's very charming. You know, it's it's an interesting uh, performance there. And again, I think the character showing up at uh, Mercenaire's shop carrying the large boombox that he needs batteries for, I feel like that's got to be a do-the-right-thing reference. I feel like he's... It looked like a Radio Rahim, like, boombox, you know, and then, like, everybody kind of coming to Sal's and talking to Sal and things like that. You know, that's, that's the vibe. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... I mean, who knows? Who knows? I if, feel like you're reading too much into it, but we don't know what inspired it. Hey, it you never know. Yeah. I mean, hey, that uh, Do the Right Thing is 15 years older than this movie, so yeah. it's entirely possible. And yeah. Sinbad is a, a man of the world. Uh, so we get to meet uh, Mother Kole's daughter. Her eldest daughter is a woman named Amasatu. Uh, and she is, uh, it's not clear how old she is, but she's like a late teenager, early 20. She's marrying age. And she is engaged to uh, the son of one of the village elders, but they haven't actually met in person yet. Uh, now, Amasatu is what's called in the movie uh, a bilakoru, which is the word that they toss around a lot for women who have not been purified. So she has not been cut uh, because Mother Kole refused to let it happen to her. And there are moments in the movie where Amasatu is begging her mother to let her get purified. She's asking, please, let me go get this ceremony because no one is going to marry a Bilikoru. 
And that's kind of the prevailing myth in the village. And that's kind of how they're able to exert this control. It's because you're never going to get married or make a dutiful wife if you're not pure. Yeah. And I think, um, if you don't mind, I'll talk about the reasoning behind this. So it's not just that Mother Cole has decided that, you know, FGM is evil and that she hasn't really decided that for herself. What she knows is that she had it done. Mm-hmm. It was horribly painful. Um, she had to have it done twice is what they said. Uh, she um, also has miscarried two of her children. Yeah. And the only one that survived was this daughter. And, and she only survived because she had a C-section, which is the, the scars that we've seen. Yeah. yeah. And so she's she's seen the effects of this and, you know, she's seen other people die from it. And she wasn't willing to do this to her daughter when she had seen what it did to her. No. So it really was just her love for her daughter, not necessarily like she wasn't trying to start a movement. Yeah, not necessarily. It, it doesn't feel like uh, it's informed by a lot of like socio-ecological reasons or humanitarian reasons. I think she just knows in her heart of hearts that this isn't right. Yeah. And we get later in the movie of, I think the closest this movie comes to being pretty graphic was we get a flashback of, Cole being cut as a child and then that's intercut with her having sex with her husband and she is in agony she's in horrifying pain because she's been I I forget the word already but her vulva has been stitched shut for the most part Uh, so she has very little room there uh, and it's causing her a great deal of pain and discomfort and she is chewing on her ring finger to kind of stifle her screams and her pain. And she's biting it so hard that the finger is bleeding and the skin is all torn up by the time her husband is finished. So that's symbolic right there that she's chewing on the finger that symbolizes her marriage and it's marred with blood. She can't really enjoy her marriage or her love for her husband if there is any to be had because of the physical anguish that this causes her. And it's not fair and it's, it's horrible to have to see. And it, it's a very blunt moment that really is, is impactful. Um, yeah. and, and I kind think of that's, a lot of that. That, that's probably true for a lot of the women. Cause they, you know, they talk about it. Like, I wish he didn't do this as much. And I think that's part of why he has multiple wives. Yeah. It's not pleasant. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And then we also meet the other two wives uh, that uh, Cole shares her time with. There's the the first wife is she's kind of the she's she's ruler of the roost. You know, everyone kind of defers to her in all things, but she's not unreasonable. But she is stern and she's strict. And then the third uh, wife is they describe her as being very very docile, and that's kind of what you see. You don't really see a lot of her because she kind of stays quiet and off to the background. Um, but we need that we get the whole range, you know, so mother Cole is kind of literally stuck in between these two extremes of womanhood. You're being extremely, uh, like matronly and, uh, uh, succumbing to your husband's whims. And then you have a little tougher, a little more hard edged and, and things like that. And she's just kind of in the middle, not really sure where her place is. Um, but she has decided just kind of, without hesitation or thought that these four girls that want protection are going to get it. We learn uh, when she sits down to talk to the little girls about why they ran away. One of them says that her older sister was cut and she died from it. We learn that there were actually six girls that ran away. 
and we don't know what happened to the other two. The, the girls keep talking about they made it to the city or they, they found somewhere else to go. Uh, it's only later in the movie that the little girls are found in the well. They drown themselves rather than have to go back and face purification. Uh, and the elders' response is just to bury the well and pretend like it never happened. They just fill it in and they move on. Yeah, there's not a lot of remorse or sadness even in that. No. They just find them and then hide it. And the main conflict in this movie is going to be between Mother Cole and this group that's called the Salandana. These are the women who are charged with uh, performing these rituals and and doing the cutting themselves. They fear and respect the Mulade. They won't go past the line, but they do insist that they're, they're trying to bring the little girl's mothers into it, trying to insist that they come out and that they they undergo this uh ceremony and that they'll they'll never be right and et cetera et cetera and uh mother Cole still fights them on all fronts like it's just not going to let them come in and take these girls as long as this mulade is in place and she also said that this mulade is going to be in place for one week you know she's not even saying i'm permanently protecting these girls this protection is going to last for one week in this time i want you to consider what you're doing and stop you know uh but again, it isn't. It doesn't even come as like a super, like like a throwing the gauntlet moment until much later. Um, yeah. So you know, we see that Mother Cole has like a son-in-law, like who doesn't really respect her. He's a very devout Islamic, and he doesn't really respect her traditions. Like he walks right past the mulade and doesn't really have any problems with it. Um, so yeah, that we eventually. Uh, we get the return of uh, Ibrahim, who is Amasatu's uh, promised fiance. He's the son of one of the elders in town, and he has since moved off to France, gone to school, and uh, made a success for himself. He's quite wealthy by the village standards, and he's come back bearing gifts and money and all kinds of things, including a Samsung TV, which is brought in in a box and is kind of a jar. I had a jarring moment because the movie feels so out of time in a lot of ways that seeing them bring in this like modern TV was kind of surprising. And the TV becomes kind of a focal point later. But it's very interesting to see like the ceremony and the fuss that they're making over Ibrahim when he comes home. I, I made a note that this would stress me out so bad. He's being followed by a guy as he comes into the village who is just endlessly, he's like his hype man. He's like endlessly shouting praise talking about how handsome he is, how wonderful, how generous. He has returned to us. Our favorite son has come back for like five solid minutes. And then the whole village turns up to applaud him and follow him and like kiss his feet. And basically I, I was I was getting stressed out on his behalf by that. I'm like, dude, oh my God, too much attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was interesting because it, I mean, he, I believe would be the future leader. I think that's kind of the that his father is the one in charge. And so he would be the one in charge next. And yeah. so that's, that's what's going on. But it, a little bit later, it kind of, you know, after all the ceremony, it doesn't feel like he's, it's an ongoing thing. It seems like it was just his greeting. And now right. his father's like, well, you don't really get opinions on things, even though I sent you off to get an education. So you'd think him coming back and being like, Hey, there's some new things in the world. Like things are changing. Yeah. That, they might want to listen to that since that's why they sent him. And that's kind of the role he serves. And I think he's kind of serving as Simbene's like analog in this movie because he did the same thing. He went off to France. He made a success of himself. And then when he returns home, 
I think he's he's bumping up against the traditions he was raised with, with his kind of Western ideas of how women should be treated and how society should operate and how some of these superstitions and rituals might seem a little backwards and cruel, you know? Uh, so he's kind of bumping into that a little bit as we go. We see him con- clash with his father, who keeps, like, threatening to cut him off, even though the son is the source of income, like, for the village, essentially. So it's like... I don't know who you're threatening. <laughs> you're not cutting this kid off. He's he's cutting you off, you know. But even over little tiny things, like he he has a uh, he has a television, he has a radio, and he's saying that the radio has now been banned. The women are not allowed to have radios anymore because it gives them ideas from the outside world and uh, it, it's poisoning them against their husbands. Yeah. Same with TV. TV's even worse because now they can see it too. Yeah, they're just. He's grasping at straws with what's causing the women to not want the purification. And, and yeah. he, he's like, it's the radio, it's the TV. And yeah, there may have been some influence, but yeah. really what's going on is there one person just said, hey, this doesn't seem right. And other people are like, yeah, no, it doesn't. Yeah. That, that's all that's really happening. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's just one person standing up and not letting these little girls go through this because they are little girls and they are scared. And yeah. it's hard to say no to that. It's hard to it's hard to turn those girls out when they're in this terrified state. And there's there are scenes where like the elders are sitting around with the Sal and Dada kind of discussing what's to be done with this woman and why is she laughing at all of our traditions and and causing so much turmoil. And things the rhetoric in the movie starts to change from the the uh, elders to the point where the two little girls who drown in the well are now being blamed on Mother Cole because she put this idea in their head that purification is evil and that they, the, you know, that it's this torturous thing that they should be afraid of. Yeah. But they don't even know that that's why those two little girls ran off. That wasn't the reason all the other girls ran off. No, no, not at all. You know, so uh, Ibrahim gets to kind of be our our analog for a little bit because he's he's not an outsider. He's from this village, but he's got this outside perspective. And as he moves around the village and sees more and more, like he's uh, he's just coming to realize he may not super fit in here. Um, and he gets into conversations with Mercenaire, and we learn his backstory that uh, he went off to war and that he refused to uh, do something that the the commanding officer wanted him to do, and so they kicked him out, and he came back to his village, and so he's always been kind of this outcast. Um, and yeah, he. he, he Things start to kind of come to a head after this. Like things are getting more and more intense. It's also clear that Ibrahim still is interested in Amasatu. Like even though she's a Bilakoro, he wants to marry her still because he doesn't care about that. Like he doesn't yeah. need her to be purified in this way to to love her. Yeah, and I mean the other factor there is that they're like, well, you're not going to marry her. You're going to marry this other girl who is his cousin who is 11. Yes. And he, you know... At first, he doesn't really, like, object that much, but then he's talking to Mer- Mercenaire, and Mercenaire is like, you you know, an 11-year-old, like, that's pedophilia. Like, that's Yeah, he straight up calls him a pedophile. E- either, and Ibrahim is kind of like, oh, wait a second. Like, I don't think I was thinking about it like that. They'd approved it in the mosque. Like, yeah. that's what my father was saying. And so I think it gives him kind of, like, a, a check. Like, oh, oh, yeah, like, I know that. I like, why was I going with what yeah. my father was saying there? And he's, Ibrahim's coming back with this idea that uh, marriage should be for love and not just because your father wants you to marry this person to consolidate family bonds or anything. And he naturally blanches against the idea of having to marry his 11-year-old cousin, you know, because he's not a monster. 
So he he he's starting to think about things like that, and it's becoming forefront in Mercenaire's mind as well. So Cole's uh, husband returns home, and he starts scolding his wives for letting these little girls uh, come into the village, and and he's basically telling her, "You're going to go out there. You're going to say the word to cast off the uh, mulade, and then we're going to return these girls to their mother." Um. And she refuses. She still flatly refuses after all of this. So the village elders order Batili to take Mother Kole out into the public square and whip her until she agrees to lift the magical protection. So she is out in the public square. Everyone is kind of circled around her. Uh, and again, this isn't like incredibly graphic in the sense of like a Passion of the Christ kind of lashing. It's all done over clothes. We're not seeing much blood or gore or anything like that. But it's very impactful and very disturbing the way that this rolls out, yeah. uh, even over her clothes, because she's surrounded by the the, the village elders are all yelling, tame her, tame her, like treating her she, like she's a wild animal. And some of the women are yelling that too. But a few of the other women are yelling for her to stay strong and to, to not give in and to not fall down and things like that. Yeah, And I mean, it's, yeah. It's actually most of the women. Most everyone of the women. except for the the one group. Yeah, the Salandata. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, Mercenaire is watching from the crowd, and Mother Cole is about to collapse from exhaustion, and Mercenaire can't take it anymore. He goes out. He takes the whip from Batili. He pushes him and stops the whipping in public. And uh, Mother Cole is taken and, and mended. Uh, but in the meantime, there has to be punishments handed down. Uh, the village elders declare that uh, Mercenaire is no longer welcome in the village and they tell a couple people to take care of him. So that night we see Mercenaire is pushing his cart out of town. He's kind of dropping pans and buckets off of his cart as he's trying to hurry. In the meantime, there are a bunch of men in the village who have painted their faces white. They're holding torches and they're chasing him out of town. And he's killed off screen. He's killed for this offense of interfering with a husband punishing his wife. Um, and that's not the only bad news that Mother Cole has to wake up to when she comes to after getting tended to. It turns out that during the whipping, uh, one of the mothers encouraged the youngest of the girls, Diatu, encouraged her to leave the sanctuary to cross the magical protection. She took her to get purified, and the little girl died. She died from the procedure, uh... And so now we're kind of seeing all the women gathering around the next morning. Mother Cole is almost like sunny and like business as usual and, and trying to unite all the wives. And the entire time over the soundtrack, we just hear this endless anguished cry from Diatu's mother because she realizes what she did. If she realized if she had just left her in there, if she had respected the magical protection, if she had stood up, then her daughter would still be alive. This very, very sweet little girl. Um, would still be alive. And it's amazing how long Sembene lets this crying take place. It's overwhelming other conversations. And it's it's become the, it becomes this wail that is impossible to ignore. Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting because they this movie does it a lot where they don't really introduce you to who you're seeing crying. And like I didn't I could didn't figure out that's who that was crying until they finally address it. Yeah. And it was just it's it's devastating. Powerful. It's really devastating to think of. But this winds up being one of the inciting incidents that gets them to finally stand up. So 
uh, the elders call everybody out to the mosque because they've finally acquired all of the radios. They've taken all of the women's radios. They've put them in a big pile and they've set it on fire. They've tossed the torch in there and their radios are burning. And all the women come out. They see what's happening. They see that this is their connection to the outside world and it's being destroyed. This little girl is dead because of this elder's edict. And they've decided they've had enough. And they said there's not going to be any more uh, genital mutilation in this village ever again. They all stand up and they say it. They start cheering and uh, uh, dancing and singing and and just declaring that this is not going to happen ever again. And all the women are united on this front. And some of the men are as well. Like the elders try and encourage Bethili to go back and, and uh, discipline his wife again. And he refuses. He says, no, no, you know, yeah, I've, she will do what she wants to do and you can't stop her. And the same thing happens with, uh, with Ibrahim. He decides he's not going to live under his father's thumb. He's going to marry Amasatu because that's the woman he loves. And he doesn't care that she's a Bilokoru or whatever name they want to call her. He doesn't care. And he's going to be with her. And so, it, it all kind of culminates in this very, and this is what I was talking about, it feeling like a more traditional Hollywood narrative, because this is the moment where Mother Kole becomes the rabble rouser and she gets people behind her. She finally has, she's finally opened their eyes. You know, they're not able to deny what she's saying is true anymore. And so they all have no choice but to band together to stop this this practice, you know? And it, it's really cool. It's It's this very ebullient like joyful way of of kind of saying like sticking it to sticking it to the man in a way you know they're 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 taking control of their own destiny and they're doing it with song and they're doing it with joy and dancing and cheering i kept yelling wasa wasa you know and it's really heartening and one of the things like that was my opening line for the show one of the things that uh ibrahim says when he dispels his father he says from now on i will have tv which means uh, he's not going to ban TVs and radios anymore. He's not going to cut people off from the outside world because there is no, there's no path forward that way. Like by being so isolationist, you know, uh, and it's pretty incredible. And so the final shot of the movie is of all the smoke coming off the pile of radios. They weren't able to put it out. The radios are done. Well, they threw the, the knives in there too. So <laughs> they did. Yeah. They took the circumcision knives. Uh, they bound them up in a cloth. They made all the salandata give them up. That was an amazing, yeah, you're good. I, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. And they tossed that in the fire as well. So if you're taking something from them, they're taking something from you. There's going to be some equality here. And the last thing we see is like the mosque, and it's being overcome with smoke, like this black, black smoke, because you're burning electronics. And uh, at the very top of the spire, you see the ostrich egg, which is, of course, the symbol of fertility, the symbol of womanhood, this big egg. And then it transitions from that egg to a television antenna. Uh, and that's what we close off on. It means like it's it's demonstrating hope. It means that they are putting out signals to the outside world. They're not going to live under this oppressive reign anymore, and they're going to start thinking for themselves and... And at no point is this like an anti-Muslim movie. It's not like saying, or an anti-Islam or anything, any way like that. Like, we don't get the impression that they're all just tossing away their religions and going off and starting their own food blog yeah. or something. You know, they're, it's it's not like that heroic Western narrative. They're still living in this very patriarchal, like, very small society. Like, this world that they live in is one village in Burkina Faso in a very small section of of africa like it's such a small small world but it feels like such a seismic shift by the end it's pretty cool 
Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, there, there's a whole undertone here too, where it's not just, it's not just this being forced on the women. It's, you know, the Bathily, he comes back and his brother tells him, like, you have to control your wives. They have to respect your authority. Like it, it's very much setting up, you know, the men, the husbands, that's their power. And yeah. this kind of takes that apart a little bit. Yeah. And one of the things that Cole says to the uh, elders during their protest is that, uh, oh, I have it written down. What did it say? It was, um, some give birth, others kill, which I thought was really cool. It's kind of preserving their their rights. It's like, yeah, we're we're the ones who are creating life. You need to stop trying to dictate how this is going to happen. Yeah. Because, you know, and then you need to stop using violence and oppression. You know, Mercenaire did not deserve to die for this, you know, yeah. and uh, uh so it is a movie that's it's shot through with tragedy. There is there there are elements of that throughout, but again, it just feels so lively and so lived in and so colorful and warm at the same time that it, it's an interesting confluence because you are being forced to encounter some real ugliness and some real uh, a disturbing content sometimes. But it's done in such a joyful way that it it's. I don't know. I, th- I thought this was kind of a magical movie. I thought this yeah. was really cool. I know. It definitely made me really angry sometimes. Yeah. Just the, the people's inability. But, it, you know, that's something that, you know, it's supposed to make you angry. Yeah, you should be angry. I think Semene wants you to feel angry about this. Yeah. And again, people really don't make movies about this practice or about this part of the world. So this feels kind of like a cultural record. It feels kind of like a treatise. It feels kind of like a open your eyes people without being preachy about it. You know, it's just, we're going to tell this story about these people in this land. And we're going to talk about something that is happening to a lot of people and that we need to be paying attention to. Yeah. And it's not like there's some savior person who comes in and tells them this is wrong. This is something that they figure out within themselves and, Yes, there's some influence from the radio, which I think you mentioned the how this is not an anti-Islam movie. They there's specifically this moment where one of the radios plays one of the things that the women have been hearing, which is it is talking about this practice. Yeah. And it says this is not necessary for Islam. This yeah. has been said that people go to Mecca, they they make the these treks and they are good Muslims and they do not do this. Yeah. So they, they very much address that this is not universally accepted and necessary for their religion. No, yeah, not at all. And it, it's a very smart way of approaching that. Uh, you know, most of the actors in this are complete amateurs. Uh, they've never done a movie before, or maybe they've only done this and one or two other things, you know? So it's very impressive. And there are even some parts where you can tell that this is kind of a lower budget movie and they may not have the best equipment. Some of the sound is like blown out in some places, some of the color a little oversaturated, but it it really doesn't matter because I think the, the heart and soul of this movie shine through in such an amazing way. Uh, it's really very incredible. I, 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 this is a hard one to track down. I will say like, if you want to watch this movie and I think you should, it's a little bit of a hard one to track down. It's only available on physical DVDs. And so if you have kind of like an art house video store in your town, we have a place here in Bellingham called film is truth, which is where we got it. Uh, and they're awesome. So if you have a resource like that, I, I would say a hundred percent check this movie out. I, I guarantee it's below your radar. It's maybe something you've never heard of or never thought about seeing before, 
but uh, I would say track it down. It's well worth your time. Yeah, and definitely don't worry about it being super depressing. I think that's what I was a little worried about coming into it. It's it's not, I mean, it's not always happy movie, but it, it's not just depressing thing after depressing thing. It's not wallowing in sadness. It's not wallowing yeah. in misery. And it's not graphic in, in uh, its depiction of any of these things. So, yeah, but... Well, that has been Mulade. Uh, that's been a re- really cool movie to discover and to to talk about. And uh, it it's, it just feels cool to see a movie from a new part of the world. You know, I've, I've seen movies from all over, never seen anything hailing from Senegal, set in Burkina Faso of all places. Like, I, I never would have thought I'd see anything like this. Nicole, thank you so much for being here and talking about this movie with me. Yeah, thanks uh, for including me. <laughs> of course. Um do you have anywhere you want to point people? You have like an Instagram account or anything you want people to check out? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, I do have an Instagram account. Um, I you can probably just find Steve's Instagram account, and mine will <laughs> pop up. <laughs> okay well there you go um so we will be back next week uh we are going to be talking about a movie called chimes at midnight this is a late period orson welles film based on henry the fourth uh and it's going to be really fascinating to talk about so we will see you next week when we discuss chimes at midnight and in the meantime uh i've got nothing to sign off on bye i guess in the meantime bye yeah that (laughs)